You are listening to the Enormo cast. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big house. place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. I'll say, you really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed time with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later. Anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And now, we can also thank the chill folks at Yeti. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and entry Normo at checkout to get a great deal on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma cast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is, it is January 9th, 2024. About high noon here in Colorado, and this is episode nothing of the Enormacast. This is actually going to be a rebroadcast of an old interview with Armando Menacal, an interview from November 2015, I believe. You old-time listeners, you remember this one? Well, I thought I'd put it back on top of the feed because of current events, several current events that are going on. Armando Menacal is a climber. But he's also, more importantly, the guy who pretty much spearheaded the creation of the Access Fund when it split off from the American Alpine Club. And the reason that Armando precipitated that split was because the Alpine Club was a little ambivalent on the issue of bolts and fixed anchors. And Armando, in his wisdom at the time, in his prescience, saw the coming battle with the government about fixed anchors on Forest Service land, National Park Service land, and on wilderness land. And of course, if you've been paying any attention to social media and you follow climbing accounts, professionals in the Access Fund, we realize we are back in a heated pitch battle about that with the government once again. The new climbing management proposal for wilderness areas legitimizes climbing as a use, but categorizes all fixed anchors, past, present, and future. And this includes any fixed anchor. If you're hung up on bolts, keep in mind that this is fixed nuts, pitons, a sling around a tree, whatever, all the business. Anyway, it characterizes them as installations, which then legally puts them up for an MRA, which is a minimum requirements analysis. So basically, the government then decides if we need these things in our pursuit of our legitimate act of climbing in wilderness. Now, I'm going to try to not go on a rant here. I know some of you are like, come on, Calouse, rant. We love it. That's how we found out about you, is you're ranting. But that's not why I posted this. Why I posted this is a call to action. What sort of action is going to be up to you? But you might ask yourself, well, where's these wildernesses that we climb in? Well, there's lots of them. Large swaths of many national parks, especially here in the western United States, are wilderness areas. For example, the most obvious one being Yosemite, 
95% of Yosemite is wilderness. Everything above 4,500 feet is wilderness. Well, you're like, man, El Cap's only 3,000 feet tall. We're good. Well, no. El Cap actually starts at about 4,000 feet above sea level. So 500 feet up the wall, you are now clipping possibly illegal fixed anchors. That's what we're looking at. Everything on El Cap, everything in the high country in Yosemite, lots of parts of Joshua Tree, lots of parts of Zion, lots of parts of Canyonlands. Oh, whoops, Canyonlands already banned bolts. Anyway, there it is. That's the current fight. And the fight is on us at the moment because the comment period, the public comment period on these regulations is currently open for the Forest Service and the Park Service until January 30th, 2024. Okay? So January 30th, 2024 is when this closes. And then they go off into their rooms and decide what's going on. I don't know what effect these comments have. The Access Fund seems to think it's important. And I trust those guys to know the legalities of this. So take a moment, head over to the Access Fund's website. You can click on their action alert to prevent prohibition of bolts or something like that. It's over there. Send a message to the Park Service and to the Forest Service. Maybe you agree with this. I don't know. Maybe you think it's cool. You've always hated bolts. You always hate when those skinny little kids run and climb harder than you. I don't know. Maybe that's your thing. Tell the Park Service about it. Maybe the Park Service is your dom and you're a sub and you're like, please, daddy, take my climbing away. I love it. It makes me so hot. Whatever. Go over there. Express your opinion. Yay or nay. Hopefully nay. Hopefully against. If you're a small government person, go talk about that. If you're a fiscally responsible conservative, go talk about that. Do you know what kind of resources this would take in practicality to be policing all this past, present, and future? It can't be done, which is part of why this is silly and arbitrary, because they'll just choose when and where and what they don't like and what they do like, which is already literally part of proposals that have gone on in places like Joshua Tree. Now, where's the BLM in all this? Ah. We love the BLM, right? We're BLM people. The BLM's like, whatever, put some bolts in, then rip them out with your four-wheeler and then lay a dead cow carcass at the base. We don't care. But wait, stay away from that hoodoo. Okay, on to Armando Menacal. This interview is from quite a few years ago, as I mentioned, but I thought I'd put it back up here for a couple days so people can get to listen to it either again or for the first time if you're not a normal cast completist. Armando has spent his life fighting this battle. The Access Fund is kind of his life's work, even though he's not directly involved anymore. And what's more, you know, this wisdom is not going to be with us forever. And we still have to honor these people that laid this groundwork that we've taken for granted up until this moment. You know, and he also fought climbing prohibition in Cuba. He's largely responsible for developing a bunch of the climbing in Cuba, working with slash pushing against the government to be able to do that there, which is interesting because everybody'd be like, oh, yeah, but. Cuba's communist. Well, is that irony? I don't know. All right. So check this out. Enjoy a conversation with uh, a very charming, wonderful man, Armando Menacal, to whom we owe a great debt and at least a little bit of your time. And don't forget to go over to accessfund.org, fill out your comment, have your voice heard. It takes just a few minutes to do both of them, the Forest Service and the Park Service. And I'm going to remind you again at the end. So maybe just press pause and go do it right now and then come back. Okay. A rebroadcast of the Peaceful Climbing Warrior 
Armando Menacal. I'm just a cowboy. Yes, it's about as close as you can get in English because it's Armando Mato Menocal. <laughs> what he said. Armando is a uh, longtime climber, uh, developer, maybe most notably for Cuban climbing. Um, but perhaps uh, one of the reasons we've been hooked up is because Brady Robinson said, you got to talk to this guy. He started the Access Fund, uh, has been involved in it his entire life. And uh, maybe that's kind of kind of one of the big reasons to have you come sit down. You're working on a a Pan Am access fund, like for right. for the entire hemisphere, everything south of the U.S. border. We say okay. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, just uh, an I- interesting background coming out of um, even as far back as the 1970s in Yosemite. So uh, welcome, thanks for coming and sitting down, Armando. And uh, we just met, uh, but I've been looking forward to this for for a few weeks since we decided to book it. So I appreciate it. Yeah, I've been looking forward to it too. More than my regular work at OR. <laughs> uh, right on. Um, you're still uh, peripherally involved in the Access Fund, which we'll get to, but I actually kind of wanted to, to ask you about this title that I, I keep reading, but most of my research has been around the Access Fund and, uh, and climbing and everything else, but there's this title, Human Rights Lawyer. And uh, I just kind of wanted to start there because that's you know something... I, I get a lot of dirtbag climbers in here and, and uh, don't get to, to walk around with titles like that. So what does that mean? And, and can you talk to me about a, a career in that, where it started, and if it was connected at all to climbing? Uh, probably in time it was. Um, human rights lawyer means that you do what are normally lawyers call civil rights cases, which can have a very, they can be very, you know, some very, you know, some people are international ones. And that's the uh, really tough job of, uh, uh, trying to help people in third world countries and other countries. It's almost like the issues I got into in the last 15 years in Cuba uh, and wasn't very effective about doing it anyway. But in the U.S., it's, you know, mostly doing civil rights cases. And I I got to California in 1966, and I was really lucky because that was the boom of uh, everything from the free speech movement at the University of California at Berkeley, the anti-war movement, the uh, uh, summer of love in San Francisco, all those things happen at once. And uh, I guess I got radicalized and wound up being uh, a lawyer representing the uh, uh, anti-war movement, mostly individuals that would get arrested. And then that got me into starting in 1970 doing poverty law. And I did start climbing in 1969. Okay. <laughs> so they, they came at about the same time. And then for the next 25 years, that's, that was what I did as a, as a lawyer doing mostly trial work. Uh, usually big cases, class actions. I had two trials that lasted six months. That's not very exciting, but <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, but, uh, that was basically, uh, paralleling, uh, the time that I was also a climber. Okay. So when you, when you showed up, you said you, you, you showed up in, in California, um, having already gone through school. Yes. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Florida, the least mountainous. Well, I guess maybe Louisiana is even less mountainous. Okay. okay. And I grew up as just a, a 
a kid down in Florida and I, I used to go out in the Everglades on my own all the time with, mm-hmm. with my friends, you know, they would tell their moms that they were at my house and I would tell my mom that I was at their house and we'd go off in the Everglades for two or three days. So, uh, I, I never thought about it till much later, but that obviously instilled some love of the outdoors. But then I went off to college and law school and I didn't, I didn't do anything in the outdoors. In my first three or four years in California, I was the same way. I didn't do anything. And I was lucky enough in 1969 to do a trip to Colorado. And this friend of mine took me out and we hiked up something called Mount Baldy. There must be a couple hundred Baldies in the yeah, United States. Right. Um, and my friend said, yeah, we did technical climbing because we did have to use our hands and feet at the top. And I went back to the Bay Area and I called up the Sierra Club and they said, oh, yeah, we have this thing called the rock climbing section. Mm-hmm. They meet every Sunday at Mount Tamalpais. And I went there and that started my climbing career. Right. I was climbing in Yosemite two months later, a month later. Uh-huh. So you walked into, into Yosemite in 1969, 1970. You, that makes me smile just because of most of us have seen this Valley Uprising film and, and the and the pictures and from that era. But so you, you go and you learn how to rock climb with the Sierra Club, uh, famously uh, a very conservative group of people in terms of going towards rock climbing. And then you walk into Yosemite and traipse through Camp 4. Was that <laughs> like, you know, two different worlds? Oh, yes. I mean, it, it, it was, uh, you know, you want to say it's it's a culture clash, but it's not that much because, you know, the bond is climbing. But there was absolutely no doubt that the Sierra Club way of climbing and the, the Valley way of climbing were two different things. Mm-hmm. In a way, I think it's much better the way people get into climbing now. You, you go to climbing gyms and you climb long before you start learning knots and stuff. But that wasn't the Sierra Club way. I mean, I, I learned things that I was using 40 years later when I guided Braxham, you know, how to escape a blip how to set up a rescue. They really didn't teach you much about rock climbing. Right. <laughs> they taught you all the things dealing with rope craft and safety. And then fortunately, one of the people teaching the class <clears throat> before I even finished said, let's go climbing. And I said, fine. And he took me to Hetch Hetchy in Yosemite National Park. And we did first ascents because every route there was a first ascent. So my first climb, real climbing experience was getting to actually climb first, you know, do first ascents. And that was the Piton era. Right. You know, basically, once it got harder than five or five, six or five, seven, <clears throat> uh, we went to aid. <laughs> These are short little climbs, 40, mm-hmm. 50 feet, little benches right. around Hetch Hetchy. Um, and, uh, and I thought, well, this is climbing. Right. Doing first ascent. Yeah. And just exploring. Oh, awesome. So I managed to, to break the bondage of, of just learning the knot craft, you know, but I did, you know, I could tie up a, a bowling with one hand in the dark. Sure. Thanks to the Sierra Club. Right. Yeah. Probably still can. <laughs> oh yeah. I did that so many times guiding right, right. for Exum. Not in the dark, but <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, so I'm kind of interested. I mean, as soon as you mentioned this 1969, you've got, I mean, that just comes with so much. Like pop culture, I don't know. I, I don't think baggage is the right word because that's negative. But imagery and everything mm-hmm. else. The Vietnam War is going on. You, you're, you're a lawyer. I mean, and you live, you lived 
around Berkeley? Is this where you're and coming San from? And San Francisco. Yeah. So, I mean, both, both places. Yeah. you're just like in it. And you go out to Yosemite and there's this like crazy hippie groove starting there as well. And yet you're a lawyer, you know. So it seems like you're just treading in all these different worlds. But they weren't that different, you know. I mean, yeah, there were guys walking around Camp 4, you know, some of them had long flowery shirts <laughs> and bell-bottom pants. They even climbed in them. But the people I was working with in San Francisco was the same way. I mean, I'd, I'd go to these lawyer meet, meetings of people that were representing anti-war demonstrators, and they were dressed, dressed just like the people in the valley, and they would pass joints around at, at meetings of lawyers. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm one of these people that uh, didn't use drugs. I think it was mainly because I think I'd found climbing. <clears throat> and when the joints would go come to me, I'd pass them on. And I used to used to always joke that people there that they used to think I must be the DEA agent at all the meetings because <laughs> I was the only one that wasn't taking a toe. Come on, man. <laughs> uh, but uh, now, nah, Chris, that it wasn't that big a difference. Okay. Now you go to court and all, right? But let me, you know, when I was a, a poverty lawyer, I'd go to work in dungarees. I used to wear cowboy boots then. And I had a coat and a tie I'd put on if I had to go to court. You know, you stand in front of a lectern, in front of a judge. The judge doesn't realize you still had your Levi's on and your boots. Right. right. <laughs> uh, and I, I could pass as a, just like, I even had a ponytail, you know. And probably couldn't have gotten away with it in a lot of places in the United States, but in San Francisco. Right. right. Uh, eventually, there were even judges with ponytails. Okay. Right on. <laughs> yeah. Th I mean, it's cool. It's just, it's just. Wild to have uh, somebody here that was just like sitting at that crossroads, so to speak, you know, that we all learn about now 40 years later um, or almost 50 years later coming up that, you know, there you were in the thick of it, so to speak. It was a very exciting time, both in climbing and in, you know, in terms of being in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I worked in down in the Mission District of San Francisco, an office that, well, we had about 10 lawyers there. And I was the head of the office. And th that was really intense. Just having to, everyone, you know, coming into my office every 30 minutes, telling me the latest hard, tough case they had. And uh, having to advise on how we're going to handle it. It was, uh, it was both intense and exciting. And I think that's what first got me into climbing was mm -hmm. that I could leave all that. Climbing just took me away from all the work I was doing. I, I joked that eventually I would have to leave post-its. I don't, I think that's more of a recent story because I don't think post-its existed at the beginning of the seventies, but I would have to leave notes to myself on the refrigerator saying what I had to do Monday morning. Cause I couldn't remember where I had to go Monday morning oh, right. after a week in a climbing. Right. That's, that's how good climbing was. What do you, what, what was it that drew you to this line of work? I mean, other than you, you became a lawyer, for however many reasons, but you know, as as a gra as as a lawyer who graduates, you can take all different paths. And what what do you think was instilled in you that said, "I'm gonna I'm gonna go this path. I'm gonna go down and towards this poverty thing." I mean, because it's not easy, and it's not, you know, I don't think it's paved with gold by any by any means. So, no, and um, and a few times in my life, I've tried to like redirect my career on purpose, and and I found that it doesn't work. <laughs> And that both 
serendipity and just being open to change is probably more important than picking a career goals. Because ironically, I mean, I grew up in the South. You know, I, I went to segregated schools all the way through college. It wasn't until I got to law school that I went to school with my first black students. And I, one of the reasons I left the South was I could see the conflict going on. And I didn't want to be in the South anymore. Right. And yet 10 years later, I was a civil rights lawyer. I didn't see that coming. You know, I finished law school. I went to work. I went to work for the biggest law firm in the West. And little by little, I started volunteering my time, both for the beginning of the anti-war movement or at the poverty law offices that were just opening. And just little by little, those became much more important to me than, you know, my coat day job. Right. And so after three years, I left my day job and did that full time. But it wasn't with a conscious thought that, that this was going to be my whole career. And the majority of the people that I did that with, you know, they went through kind of like the cycle of a lot of young climbers, right? People join, come into climbing three or four years. It's really intense. It's important to them. It's probably the most important thing. And then they eventually do something else, mm -hmm. you know, and it's only us lifers that stuck with it. And the same thing happened to me in my professional work. I stayed being a civil rights lawyer for my entire career, mm -hmm. which actually ended pretty early as a, as a lawyer, because basically when I was in my fifties, I stopped practicing law as a full-time career and started doing other things. Okay. And again, I tried to be real conscientious about that choice. And I went and talked to friends that I knew, you know, one guy went from being a law professor to the general manager of the Oakland A's. <laughs> Another one went from being a lawyer to being the executive director of the Academy of Sciences and, and talked to them about how it happened. And then it turned out it wasn't that they planned on making changes like that. It's just that a life opportunity presented itself and they took it. Right. I think most people, if they look back on their lives, always have regrets of things they didn't accept chances for a change. Right. And I think it's those of us that are open to those kind of things that their lives take off in new directions. So here I, you know, mine wound up being in the fifties when I wound up being a climbing guide at Exum and wound up doing that for the next dozen years, mm -hmm. you know, starting a international guiding company in Cuba and climbing in Cuba. Right. I didn't plan any of that. Okay. So now you, you did, just mentioned there's the people who start climbing and then they are super into yeah. it for quite some time and then they end up maybe moving on to something else and you said yeah but not like us lifers so talk a little bit if you would about um about the arc of climbing through i mean basically all of this and and continues i mean as as someone who's still peripherally involved in the access fund it's still a big part of your life so can you talk about what your climbing looked like was it was, were you a weekender did you have Big goals? Did you, you know, what, what, you were hanging out with Bridwell. You mentioned that earlier. <laughs> well, I, I knew Jim. Or in the back same, then, yeah. same, you know, that same era, the 1970s, this like heady free climbing era and, yeah. and big wall era and everything else. So what did that look like? Well, you know, even climbing was at a real crossroads and exciting then, but climbing really is what opened my whole life into something that was much, much broader, you know. Most people come to climbing after like parents taking them hiking, backpacking, uh, 
experiences like that, outdoor experiences that then lead them to climbing. Mine was the other way around. Climbing was what opened everything else for me. And eventually, you know, I've been doing things like climbing, kayaking, backcountry and extreme skiing. I was part of the parapenting movement in the 80s in the United States. And it was climbing that opened all these up because my first hiking, my first skiing <laughs> was all to be able to go someplace to climb. Climbing was the first thing right, that I did. Right. And so it has remained central in, you know, in my life. I've never been better than an intermediate climber. Mm-hmm. You know, I joke that the reason I left California after 25 years was that I basically done every climbing assembly in Tuolumne that I could do. <laughs> and I knew I'd never do the climbs that I wanted to do the most. You know, I, I, I tried and I, I mean, I trained at gyms over and over. I wanted to get to 511 cracks so I could do Astro Man, the Rostrum. And I finally realized <laughs> I was never going to do those. And so I left. Actually, I left California for other reasons, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that was true. Right. I'd done every climb in the valley, in the meadows that I could do several times. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was a good time right. to leave. And I never got to the point where I could climb Astro Man. <laughs> right. And I mean, I guess someone could have yarded me up it, but I, I'm not saying I had to, I, I would have had to lead every pitch, but right. I at least wanted to feel that I, I was climbing. It. Sure, sure. So who, who were, who were your peers at this point, climbing wise? And, and or did you just run the gambit? No, you know, I, it wasn't certainly the, the best known climbers and mm-hmm. it wasn't the, the, like the stone master people now that are become good friends of mine, you know? Right. You know, people, no, I wouldn't say good friends, but acquaintance, you know, John Long and Rick Akamazu and all that. I didn't, I didn't know them then. The weekend warriors are, are very different, mm-hmm. you know, cause we just go up and, or camp even for a week and stuff. When you were a weekend warrior, you send me, you didn't even stay at camp four usually because you'd have to get, show up at camp four. Well, you get there Friday night. You can't get in. You'd have to then get in line Saturday morning for about an hour to get a campsite. Well, no, most of it would be got up. Would be we'd be off climbing. We'd never be at a campsite. Mm-hmm. Most of it just go up bandit camp the weekend. And there was a a very different culture that developed at Camp Four in the parking lot. And later on, twenty years later, when I was negotiating with the Park Service over Camp Four because they were trying to shut it down after the flood in 1999, I think, and then that led to the litigation and everything it wound up saving camp four i I particularly talked to them women we've also got to preserve the parking lot culture (laughs) because so many of the california climbers who only go up on weekends they don't stay at camp four they meet at camp four in the parking lot just the number of if, if you used to go back through there in those days there'd be a dozen people cooking next to their cars mm-hmm. dinner right because they weren't staying at a campsite. Yeah, before they'd scatter into the night. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah that didn't, I mean, that was the same in, in the 90s when I was there. Yeah. Because um, I was that guy. And you would see all these people. Living in Southern California and coming up for a yeah. week at a time or, a, or, or yeah. you know, a couple nights before I'd go up on El Cap. Yeah, I would enter yeah. camp for once a month or twice a month. Right. But I'm at the parking lot every single Saturday and Sunday looking for partners. That's where you'd always meet people and 
sort gear. You, you drive through there now, you see people sorting gear in the parking lot still. So uh, uh, as we're on this little bit of a tangent, what was the response from the, from, I mean, initially you're like, okay, we also have to talk <laughs> about this parking lot. I'm, I can only imagine that that was one of the things they really wanted to get rid of. Oh, yeah, they wanted to limit the parking. Well, they were trying to get rid of the whole thing. Right. Which you have to understand that, that there has been, there was a long running history of the uh, park service and particularly the Curry Company, which was the main concessionaire trying to get rid of Camp 4 and the climbers. Mm-hmm. And actually the, the person that got me started in access work was a climber named Rafi Badan, who's well known in the thirties, beginning of the forties. And Rafi was a blacksmith and a very gregarious man. And whenever there was a conflict between the Curry Company or the Park Service and Climbers, Rafi's way of dealing was it with it was he would throw a bunch of charcoal and stakes in the back of his vehicle and drive up to Yosemite, throw a big barbecue and invite everyone, the Park Service and the Climbers, to talk, mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of to work out the problem. Well. He, he eventually pushed me into helping him and then doing acts. And that's what got me started. And actually, some of the first issues I worked with was Camp 4 because they, they wanted to close it. And there were problems. I mean, in those days, the Curry Company, of course, didn't like the way climbers behaved in its facilities. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't, it, not, it didn't necessarily covet Camp 4. It just soon have it raised and. <laughs> right. Get rid of everybody. Right. Huh. So they wouldn't have to deal with the people that were scarfing food in the cafeteria and right. hanging out there the, all the time. You know, this Camp 4 thing and, and you know, again, the Valley Uprising movie really highlights, you know, this conflict between climbers and the Park Service. And I think it's it's legendary and maybe at times overblown, but maybe at, at times worse than we thought it was. Um but it seems like we're in an era now where there's a little bit more understanding between the park service and the climbers. Do you oh, feel like that or? Oh, or? absolutely. No, no. It's, yeah. Yeah. No, things have, things have changed tremendously and, and, you know, and for the better. I mean, <laughs> I remember one story. I, every time I'd go up there for meetings, I'd try to take some other climbers with me just for numbers sake, you know, <laughs> I remember I was having a meeting with the superintendent. He was an acting superintendent. And I took Al Steck with me, wonderful, you know, person, climber and everything, great history, you know, been climbing there since the 50s. <clears throat> and so Al and I are sitting there with the superintendent. And this probably was the late 80s. And this superintendent, you know, I start talking to him. And this was when we were the access committee of the American Alpine okay, Club. Cool. And so I'm starting to talk to him about the problems of climbers. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who do you represent? And I said, well. You know, we're talking about the climbing community. He said, no, no, no. What's the organization? I said, well, we're the access committee of the American Alpine Club. How many people in the American Alpine Club? So, oh, the American Alpine Club has been in existence since 1903. And I start giving them all. No, no. How many people are in the American Alpine Club? You know, it's been doing all this work. All It's just got, you know, climbers all over the world. How many members in the American Alpine Club? My recollection was something like, 1,300, 1,500. <laughs> and he just sat back and he said, well, you know what? The problems of climbers are as important to me as a dump truck load full of dirt. <laughs> you 
He obviously had not been to what in those days was called the Dale Carnegie School of Charm. Right. And Al, Al and I looked at each other and that's how the meeting went. You know, we both got out that room and said, wow, I've never heard of that dump truck load of dirt. Yeah. Not a good reception. <laughs> so, um, well, I mean, yeah. I guess I, so that, that yeah. tells you what it was like right. back in, in, in those days. Yeah, know? sure. And I mean, you know, I guess he has a point as a constituency at that point. There's not, it wasn't know, a he lot. He doesn't have to worry too much about, right. I mean, 1300 letters, even if you got the whole crew to write one, you know. And, and in those years, for example, after, uh, when Camp Four came the closest to being closed after the flood and then little by little, you know, working with the park service, there was a litigation and all that. And things started, you know, that's when things started to change. It actually had to get worse before it got better. And then uh, at that first big reunion where the park service, I can't remember when it was. It was only about five, six years ago, maybe a little mm -hmm. more than that. There was a, a big party there. And and the superintendent was going, going to speak. And I remember I contacted uh, an old climbing friend of mine who was there, who had begun a climber who worked, then eventually worked for the park service and worked his way up, became part of the planning office, Gary Colliver. I mean, I remember when I started, met Gary, he was, he was working nights in the jail. <laughs> it's the only time, I, fortunately, I got to see the jail in Yosemite was when I would go see Gary. <laughs> right on. Uh, I contacted Gary. I said, you know, Gary, you know, I've been pushing for years to have the park service stop calling camp for Sunnyside, which is what they'd always called it. Oh, yeah, that's We'd right. We'd have these meetings with the Park Service, and the climbers are saying, you know, we got to do this about camp for you. We want you to do this. And the Park Service would always be answering, well, we don't have that in the plans for Sunnyside. You know, <laughs> that's, that's, and it was symbolic of like two ships passing in the night. Sure. We were <laughs> literally and figuratively, figuratively never talking about the same thing. Right. And I had been pushing them over and over to change the name. And this was just before then when I talked to Gary, just before that the superintendent was going to speak. And I uh, talked to Gary. I said, Gary, if you tell the superintendent that if he wants to immediately tell climbers, this is a new era, we are working with you, he should announce that it's going to be Camp 4 from then on. Mm-hmm. Nothing will tell climbers more about the change than if you do that. And the Monday morning after, because I was living in Wyoming by then, I get a call from Gary. And he says, Armando, I want you to know when the superintendent spoke, he announced that from then on it was going to be camp. You just made this the right suggestion at the right moment. Because awesome. <laughs> I'd been making it for 10 years. Right, right. <laughs> but it just shows you how you have to sometimes just keep keep doing something and eventually uh, if you hit that right moment, um, they did it. And it's really a symbolic of the, the way th things are better now. Right. So is it, uh, I, I kind of want to move on, but I have one more question. Mm -hmm. of, of So what is the status of its, I mean, how is it protected at this point? I mean, is there, is there some, uh, perpetuity? No, no, it, but, but it has they been, like tomorrow I'll be like, guess what? We're going to close it again. No, because it's, it has been designated okay. as a historic site. Oh, okay. Right but uh, a lot of bad things can happen. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, most of these things are just a matter of personal relationships. Mm -hmm. 
eventually what you hope is that the land managers realize that they get much more out of working with climbing community. Right. And you want climbers to recognize the same thing. Right. Well, there's okay. a, I mean, going back to the, the dirt or dump truck full of dirt, you know, there's, it's no longer 1300 people in the constituency. You know, there's a voice in, a, I mean, if there's, there's two things that I think too is that, you know, cause a lot of times there's this historical precedent deal, you know, it's like, well, why can't mountain bikers ride on this trail, but horses can? Well, horses are the historical use or whatever. I think, I mean, aren't we in an era now where they're they're like realizing that the history of Yosemite is now like laced with the climbing history? It's together to a oh, certain yes. extent. Oh no, climbers have benefited tremendously because we are, you know, what in to the Park Service and and the Forest Service is considered important. We are an historic use, right? I mean the 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 main problem that mountain bikers have because they have more numbers than we are. They have more num um. More money if you just look at their their members, and they're well organized in terms of doing trail work and everything else. Is it they're last in line? They just came along after right the Wilderness Act and all these other uses, and they're trying to get into places that now are, the the land managers are already busy with all the current users. Right. You know, um, there was one meeting I can't remember what it was where. I think it was in an AAC meeting where we had a panel discussion of on access and I had invited um, the, the chief ranger from Yosemite Valley to speak. And I was the moderator and I started the talk by saying, and I hadn't told him this. I just told him, I'm going to start with a hypothetical. I'm going to throw it at you, but I don't want to tell you what it was. I said, well, assume that climbing had never existed in Yosemite. And today, when now you're the chief ranger, this guy walks in, kind of shaggy looking, big beard and everything, vile looking. And he says, I'm going to climb El Cap. I'm going to be up there 68 days. And I went through the hypothetical and basically described Warren Harding's climb. And I said, would you let him do it? And he hadn't expected this question at all. And, and he said, fuck no. <laughs> and then he backtracked. <laughs> right. But that was the reality, you know? Yeah. We were lucky that, you know, Warren Harding did it when he did it because we could not do it today. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, the whole idea of it would, would transgress so many of the sort of set rules, um, the exceptions that are being made in terms of, of even just can't like, let's pretend there's just camping in one place for 68 right. days or whatever, you right. know, so. And, and that was part of the conflict that began at the in the 80s when sport climbing was introduced because sport climbing to the climbing community was important because you know we had people starting to rap bolting rehearsing and all the other problems that caused an ethical dispute but sport climbing also took climbers to different places they had not climbed before you know you thought of the climbing was the tetons the semming um Places where there were big climbs to do. Sport climbing suddenly met little tiny crags, state parks, county parks, city parks. Climbers started putting up routes in those places. Right. They'd never seen climbing. They had no idea what climbing was. And that was another whole aspect of that conflict, which wasn't within the climbing community. It was between climbers and land managers because we now had a whole new breed of land managers that 
were accustomed to, con- you know, dealing with small parks and were accustomed to controlling everything. And here come these people who, you know, in a, in a short period of time, suddenly have taken over a, a crag, putting up t- dozens of routes. Mm-hmm. And they say things like, no, no, we don't want you to tell us where to climb. No, we put in the anchors. You don't. Right. And we decide you know, where each of these is going to be. Just, you know, to climbers, it's, it's integral, but to land managers, the idea that not, not only do climbers do it, but we alone decide it. I mean, in a way, that's been one of the hardest battles in defending all use of climbing techniques is that climbers insist that we alone can decide. Imagine if people with trail hikers came along and said, you know, we, we want you to build trails, but, but we're going to decide where those trails are going to go. You don't. Right. Or we're going to build them and we're not going to tell you until we're done. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No. That, yeah. You know, I guess I'd <clears throat> kind of occurred to me, but when you state it like that, I, I, I can just, I get a little tense even hearing it <laughs> because I can just imagine what kind of, I'd never thought about how an intense a problem that might be for, you know, a land manager who personality aside, that's their by, I mean, that's their job description. Yes. Is there there to keep things in order and not let everybody just do whatever the hell they want? Because and, and to them, it's a dangerous activity. Absolutely. And yeah. they're used to, you know, saying, oh, hey, if we can't have two lifeguards on duty all the time, hey, we got to shut the pool down. Right. And all of a sudden, here comes a group of person, climbers and say, no, we're going to do this on our own. And yeah, dangerous, but no, we don't want you in any way involved in controlling it. And, and we're so lucky that that is still... <laughs> Uh, the ethic of climbing, and we have so far managed to persuade land managers at every level to allow us to do that. And I've really learned when you go to a third world and all of a sudden you try to do the same things like in Cuba, <laughs> it's a shock. Right. <laughs> well, that the bolting thing, you know, the, the, the sort of rise of sport climbing coincided, did it not coincide with, with, um, your efforts to be on this, the access committee and then starting the access fund oh, as yes. a separate entity. So can we talk about a little bit about that since oh, we're sure. talking about bolting a little bit? Oh, sure. Because well, I'd already started working in camp four. And then there was a, another place. Uh, there were a couple of little places in California where I was, where I started doing some access work. And then the president of the American Alpine Club said, well, would you start an access committee? They already had a mountaineering or a conservation committee. They asked me to do that. And I said, sure. One of the first people I picked to be on it was this fellow up in uh, Oregon. Great guy. Wound up working with the Access Fund for years as a trail builder, Jim Angel. And uh, Jim was well, one of the few people I got to work with over the years was older than me even. <laughs> and Jim had been fighting to get uh, Mount St. Helens open after the, vol- you know, the volcano explosion, particularly the, you know, so people could climb it. And, uh, he'd been, he'd gone through all the climbing management plans and stuff, and he couldn't get them to finally just open it. The Forest Service was really dragging its heels. They, everything had been put in place, but they wouldn't make, make the plan. So Jim and I talk about it, and he finally decides what, what he wants to do is, is way back in the winter, he says, I'm going to send the Forest Service a letter saying on 1st of July, I'm going to climb Mount St. Helens whether you put the timing management plan in or not, I'm going to go climb. So it was a, a form of civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but it was being done in a situation where, you know, he, he played by the rules. He'd done everything right. They were just dragging their heels. And so, uh, we said, fine, I, you know, let's do it. And as soon as the members of the board of the American Alpine Club heard about it, I mean, they threw Jim and me under the bus. I mean, they never came to us. Instead, they just disavowed our, <laughs> they wrote letters to the Forest Service saying, these guys aren't part of the American Alpine Club. So I said, well, all I got right. better things to do. Exactly. All right. <laughs> I walked away from it. Well, three years later, there was a new president of the American Alpine Club, Jim McCarthy. And Jim contacted me again. He said, I want you to form an access committee and I will back you 100%. And he did. And that's when the access committee really started. And by then we were, you know, knee deep in the bolting controversies all around mm -hmm. the country. Mm -hmm. uh, there were other controversies, you know, Waco tanks got closed. <clears throat> there was a lot, a lot of things happening, but the core issue was bolting and sport climbing. And it, it was dividing the climbing community. And I mean, I had good friends who, you know, tried to persuade like the park service and at Yosemite and other places that they should ban bolts. But in general, what you had was climbers saying to the parks, oh, you should ban rat bolting. They, they were trying to get them to regulate right. ethics. Really like specific. And the only yeah. message that was getting through to the officials was, oh, we'll, we'll ban either bolts or climbing. <laughs> right. Because, <laughs> I mean, they weren't going to ban rat bolting. They didn't care about that or rehearsing. But that's what the climbers were arguing about. <laughs> that's so ridiculous. They were... Yeah, how but could at they that, even, how could they possibly like enforce a a rehearsing ban? That's uh, that's awesome. But anyway, it was the it was the whole the mess, package, right, the of sport yeah. climbing. Yeah, and it was dividing the uh, climbing community. You know, one little story of how we tried to deal with it was the first real ban of bolts was in the Superstition Mountains outside of Phoenix. Very strange wilderness area, and that the wilderness starts right at a parking lot next to a city. Right. And you walk a hundred feet in and you're wilderness. Okay. And there are crags immediately. And that was one of the early places where a lot of sport roads got put up and the district ranger there banned bolts. And so we had went, met with them. They eventually appointed a task force of the people who were against uh, placing bolts. They were really against climbing and the climbers and Sierra club. Anyway, it was, it was the first task force at the end of the eighties that addressed this. And one of the first things they do in these meetings like this is they say, well, we, you know, we got to have assigned different people to work on different parts of the problem. One of the first things they said was we, we need a definition of, you know, what bolts and climbing and all these things are. And I immediately put up my hand, you know, oh, I will, I'll do definitions, you know, because I knew nobody else is going to want to do definitions. Right. <laughs> and we changed the definition from bolts to fixed anchors. Okay. And purposely oh, included. You lawyers. Yeah, but we huh? purposely included anything being left behind on the rock by climbers. Fixed pins and slings. It actually upped the ante by making the consequences greater to climbers. Because you couldn't leave slings or fixed pins behind as well as bolts. And it, uh, it therefore made it a bigger issue in the long run, but we did it in order so it bolting would not be a wedge in the climbing community. Okay. We wanted to show the trad climbers that, wait a minute, you got a stake in this too. Sure. 
I mean, the number of trad climbers who think they they weren't clipping bolts was huge. We all, but we were all clipping bolts. <laughs> it's just they weren't all bolted routes. Right. Exactly. We all had a stake in bolts, but fixed pins were they, they would eventually, I thought, have been included too. Because mm-hmm. what the battle was about was climbers placing things and then leaving them there. Sure. Uh, and us having that that decision making power that we alone decided. But it was the climbers, you know, well, those of us that were there and that that created that fixed anchor definition. And that one, that's still true today. Mm-hmm. It's all three of those are included. Right. Slings, fixed pins, and bolts. But our initial thought was just not to allow it to be a wedge in the climbing community to make it that all of us had a shared state. Mm-hmm. It worked pretty well except everywhere except with the AAC board of directors, you know. And they kept trying to rein in its own access committee. Even though we were really, you know, popular within with the membership. And Jim McCarthy's way of dealing with it was he never let it come to a vote. Right. So essentially we had three years that Jim was president. Jim's a very powerful guy. I mean, in, in, as a personality. Sure. And he used that to, uh, he, he made a lot of the changes at the American Alpine Club. But he, he allowed us to grow for three years. And by the end, we, we were actually raising our own money. Okay. Outside of the AAC. It, it never went through the AAC's money thing. But at the end, the problem was we, there wasn't a single resolution of the board of directors endorsing any position that the access committee was taken on behalf of, mm-hmm. <laughs> of the American Alpine Club. And as soon as Jim was gone as president, uh, there was immediately efforts to rein us in. And so, uh, it wasn't long. It was about a year later that we decided that we had to form our own freestanding organization. Okay. And we left the AAC. Right. Access. And eventually the AAC itself matured and changed and it's now a it works hand in hand with the access right you guys sort of made up and got back together it took although there are some old former presidents of the american alpine club that haven't gotten over it sure (laughs) and i i must admit i haven't gotten over it 100 percent myself on the other side of the fence because those last year or two that we were still in the aac i used to always say that the main thing i did was keep the aac off the backs of the people that were doing the work on the access committee. Right. I wasn't, that was my main job was to shield them from the rest of the organization. While they were actually getting things done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I was really happy when we separate. Right on. Even though, you know, it was scary to start out a whole new organization. Mm-hmm. And now it's a, you know, it's become a huge success, but. Right. Was it, was it like wobbly for a while? I mean, or well, that, are you like on a trajectory? Have you always been on the sort of a trajectory of, of gaining steam, as it were? Oh no, the first year or two, it was well, first few months. I think we left the AC in December 1990. Started our own, had a meeting. Actually, I think it was in Salt Lake where we debated the things like a bylaws and moved on. And uh, in April, uh, I get a call from our only funder. <laughs> We really had one source mm-hmm. of money, and uh, it was an annual thing that we in-house called the call, where uh, first Jim McCarthy and then it was me would call Yvonne Chenard and ask for money, and Yvonne would say how much, give him a number, and we get a check. 
And it would, and we get him, so he wouldn't send it to the AC. He'd send it directly to Randy Vogel, our right. treasurer. And we had our own bank accounts and a little side story. Brady uh, Robinson, the current executive director, within the last year sent me, I don't know how he found this, but somewhere in the archives, he found an old canceled check drawn on the bank account, American Alpine Club Access Committee. And it was obviously one that, that Randy had done in our old checking account. Right. And I don't think I ever saw a check back from that era. And the American in American Alpine Club is misspelled <laughs> in the printed check. <laughs> I don't know if Randy did that so that, you know, the AAC could never grab the money. <laughs> He'd say, oh, no, we're we're a different right. audience. We're, we're American with two R's. <laughs> it's a whole different group of people. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty well, wild. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Next year is the 25th anniversary, and I hope Randy will be there. And, and we'll, we'll, that, that'll be a good story to find out the, uh, if uh, if Randy just couldn't spell or if right. it was intentional. But anyway, uh, come April, I, Devon wants to see it, and I stop off in Patagonia. And that's when the bolting controversy is really going on. Right. Royal Robbins was writing articles about bolting and stuff. And uh, Yvonne says, unless you change your position on bolts, I mean, you're not getting any more money. So we had a board meeting shortly after that. And so we, you know, we had to face the tough decision. Do we continue our current position uh, and lose our only source of funds <laughs> uh, or keep the position and try to, you know, move forward? I mean, it's literally our start. We were just getting started. Sure. And um, I think in the in the end, it wound up being the best thing for us because the decision was, and it was it wasn't a simple one because you know it was easy. It would have been easy to start making compromises. You know, we'll back off a little bit on this. Right. And, yeah, it sounds like some sort of presidential campaign, right? Or yeah, the donors like you know this isn't right. you know, and this it is took what us, I would prefer yeah. happens right. And it took about ten years before Patagonia came back on board, and that's all now you know water under the bridge, right? But it was um it was a real great stand up moment for <laughs> for us yeah. to finally decide. And that first couple of years was tough. I mean, there were some paychecks for employees that were met only by second mortgages by some people and by phone calls to people in this industry. I mean, you and I are here meeting during the outdoor retailer right. show. And I mean climbers joined the access fund from the beginning. But the strongest initial supporters were the outdoor industry. And in those days, hardly any of them sponsors were sponsors of the American Alpine Club. Mm -hmm. The American Alpine Club had no corporate sponsors. Okay. This industry recognized that the access fund was out there doing the work that was important to them. You know, there, if you couldn't climb, you weren't going to be selling the gear. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a pretty simple equation. Right. Yeah, Business but they ice. really believed in us. Right. And Black Diamond was just starting at the same time. They were our strongest supporter from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And one of the best validations that we ever had that we were doing something right was that the outdoor industry were the first ones to support us. And there were people in the outdoor industry that met our paychecks, payrolls on right. A Friday. Right. In response to a phone call the day before. Okay. So. And I don't think that was just 
that they were doing it because it's in, you know, their best long-term interest. They, mm-hmm. it was because they agreed and believed in us. And I always thought that was the, one of the best validations. Uh, I want to leave the access fund, um, and the access thing. We'll, we'll probably close. I'll, I want to talk about the Pan Am, um, one that bring that back around. But before we get too much further and run out of time, I wanted to ask you about Cuba. You were maybe a self-avowed sort of weekend climber for a long time in Yosemite and everything else, but it looks to me or it sounds to me in what I looked at that Cuba suddenly became this real passion for you in terms of climbing there. Um, yeah. Can you talk about like what, how that happened and, and what it meant to, to go to a place like that? And yeah. I mean, this was what, what years was this? I mean, it wasn't well, easy to go to Cuba. It hasn't been easy up until no. what a couple of weeks ago. And also you understand where I, where I came from for that because uh, even though, you know, I was defending sport climbing, which you're doing when you're defending bolts, I wasn't that much of a sport climber. I mean, I'd already been a trad climber. Which and, is to say a climber because there was no. Yeah. When yeah, you started, was yeah, there was yeah. no, but, but anymore in sport climbing, I always loved to go any, I loved all kinds of climbing. I did mountaineering. I did expeditions. You know, I, I started doing ski mountaineering just because I loved to be able to climb and then ski. I loved everything associated with climbing. I don't think we tended to put an adjective in front of what kind of mm-hmm. climber we were then. And I clipped tons of bolts because one of my favorite climbing places eventually became Tuolumne. And you're climbing faces and climbing bolts. I mean, that, I think in the eighties, that was the main climbing I did. I did, I, there was a period there where I didn't stop going to the valley. I just loved the meadows so much, but you know, you were maybe going <laughs> 20 more feet between bolts. But then I moved from California, went, you know, and moved to the Tetons, started working as a climbing guide for X. And my family was from Cuba. My mother was born in Cuba. My father went to school there back and forth. One of my ancestors was president of Cuba. And so on my own, 1998, I just, uh, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't been there in 40 years. So I said, well, I'm just going to go. I just went to Mexico and went over there on my own. And I spent two weeks there, met the woman who eventually became my wife <laughs> and is here's outdoor retailer show with me. But when I was there, my Lonely Planet guide described this place, Mignales, as being, you know, this spectacular site with walls that were similar to those in Yosemite. I said, well, you know, gosh, I got to go see this. So I went there <clears throat> and there is not at all like Yosemite, but it did have <laughs> these big four, 500, some 800 foot high walls of limestone. So even though I wasn't a sport climber and, and didn't know anything about karst limestone, turns out it's karst limestone, just like in Thailand and other places in, in Asia. Uh, I didn't even know that then, but, you know, I started asking around. I said, well, has anyone been climbed here? Have you ever seen anyone? No, no, no. Everyone said no, and they've ever seen that. And I even cut a path with, with a guide there uh, up to the base of one of the walls and stuff. and. Uh, and walked along on the wall. It's pretty impressive. And so I, I came back to the United States, started talking about friends about it. And lo and behold, I was talking to George Braxick, who, well, that, he, he was no longer the publisher of Rock and Ice. He'd started Rock and Ice. And he said, oh, yeah, Craig Lubin wants to go there, you know, because he's done climbing in Puerto Rico and Cayman Brock. And eventually, two or three months later, he puts a, a team and we, we're back in Cuba with power drills and stuff. And as 1999, Craig and I did four trips the first year. I mean, he and I just totally you know, were just taken over by Cuba. 
that just took off a whole new tangent in my life, you know, mm -hmm. helping put up sport routes. And, uh, you know, we just, Craig and I really fell in love with you. Right. So you mentioned earlier when we were on the access issue and talking about land managers and, and wanting to control everything. It's not always easy to uh, get away with stuff like that in, in, a, in a place like Cuba where climbing is just sort of an alien activity. Um, so what was it like to roll into the culture there and, and start spraying bolts up these walls? Well, at first, you know, it, we, we had no opposition because, I mean, you're in a rural area. The Vinales Valley is a, a valley of about 10,000 people living there. And, uh, we, you know, you, you, you cross farmers' land to get to the walls, and we befriended the, the farmers. Craig and I had made a special effort to include Cubans. Uh, so that actually, when we first went there, we, we brought some Cubans who were just starting to climb. Um, and so, and we had good contacts. It was nice to have no controversy about bolts. I mean, the controversy which developed over time was with the government, but not dealing with the, the how we climb issue mm -hmm. as in the United States. But in Cuba, since it's a totalitarian country, the government is accustomed to controlling everything, and particularly in the sports world. And here was an activity where they did not start it. They didn't control it. And at the heart of it, there was this feeling that climbers themselves run it. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things in all the years working now in, client, in Cuba is I never talk politics with them. Right. I mean, you don't talk, mention Fidel or totalitarianism and all that. You don't. Um, talk about the problems with the government, but the climbers there develop the same attitude that climbers do everywhere. They don't want the government telling them what to do with the climbing. It's, it's something inherent in the sport. It mm -hmm. has nothing to do with politics, but you know, in Cuba it does, but that's different because in that system, politics is into everything. And so as far as the government's concerned, it's a political act when you're doing something that they don't control. Okay. When climbers have no interest in politics there, I've always found it interesting that they've developed the same attitude about freedom in terms of their climbing that, that I found climbers have all over the world. Mm -hmm. you know, we're basically don't accept any sort of authoritarian control or regimentation of how we climb right. and what we climb. And we've never talked to that with the Cubans, but they've, <laughs> They share that same opinion. Sure. It's not starting you know, like, right. you know, when you're teaching them to climb, you don't talk about that. Right. It just appears. Yes. It or just developed. There. Yeah. Yeah. It comes, it comes with the package you know, mm -hmm. of uh, climbing. So what's the state of it now? Well, we're in 2015. <laughs> I think the first time they called me in to talk about climbing the government, because they, they found it easier to, to, to blame it on a foreigner than blame it on the Cubans. Sure. So the first time they started c talking about problems with climbing was 2003, and they summoned me uh, to a meeting in uh, the capital of the province with the meeting of the head of the park service there. And uh, the favorite phrase of Cuban bureaucrats is that you were doing something that wasn't authorized. They say, well, she, this woman's head of the park service who was meeting with me and, and she brought the lawyer for the park service. 
the lawyer for the Park Service kept writing down. But I noticed very quickly that she was only writing down what the director of the Park Service was telling her. Mm -hmm. She didn't care what I was saying. It was They were just building a record of what I was being told. Sure. <laughs> so, that, so that then they could uh, do whatever they wanted to do with me. But the main line was climbing isn't authorized. And, mm -hmm. and I'd say, well, does that mean it's prohibited? And he'd say, well, it's not authorized. Does that mean that if I do it, you know, I'm violating a law? Well, we haven't authorized climbing yet, so you really shouldn't be doing it because it's not authorized yet. And I found that this is the attitude around the, the whole country is that until the government authorizes something, the people shouldn't be doing it, you know. And so, I mean, that sort of meetings talk went on for years. Until, Did you ever say, well, can someone go ahead and authorize it then? <laughs> or can we oh, move no, to no, that? Yeah. <laughs> that? That all happened. And, you know, oh, that's being worked on, right, it's being right, considered. Right. And, uh, uh, no, they never did. They never, quote, authorized it. And then eventually in 2012, they actually out and out banned all access to the mountains around Mignales. It, it mostly affected climbing because they, in effect, closed climbing. But in fact, what they closed was hiking, climbing, birding, which by that time, Vinales was a World Heritage Site. It was a national park. They banned everything. Huh. All access to the mountainous areas, unless you go with a guide. And the guides are only authorized to go on three trails, and none of which, you know, you can't go climbing with the guide. So, but, you know, it's like Kabuki Theater in Cuba. <laughs> uh, climbing now the officials sit back and say it's banned so we've taken care of it and they they post guards eh, once or twice a week occasionally at one or two places they're always gone by two o'clock in the afternoon so at those places the rule is you go climbing after two they're never there on weekends and there's a schedule of like all the other places you can go the rest right. of the times so. right and so uh, you can still climb. Everybody still climbs, but they all play this game of the the officials thinking they've banned climbing, climbing stop happening, and climbers saying that we can still climb and everyone's climbing. Sure, but it does. It you know it certainly brought home to me the impact occurring in a lot of places in South America. Um, in in terms of uh, threatening climbing. Right. And I, I was going to ask you that. So, I mean, is that these dealing with this, is that the impetus for, for the, the pan, pan am access, pan am. Yeah. For access all pan am in Spanish. Right. Um, for yes. Although it, it was more, even more personal than that. Okay. Because, um, in 2005, when I was, you know, cause I basically would, would spend about five to six months a year in Cuba by then. I was going there every spring and fall summer. I was working back in. Jackson for Exum. In the winter, I'd have two or three months of skiing, working a little bit on avalanche courses. And when I was in Cuba, I was in climbing, or I also was doing uh, guiding trips there. Not sport climbing, because you know, sport climbers know. <laughs> right. You never make, make money on it. any sort of climbing guiding. But just regular eco, as we called it, guiding. Because I'd scouted every square inch of Cuba looking for climbing areas. Sure. So I had pretty full life there you know built around cuba four or five months 
a year, um, my then girlfriend and I, she was actually my fiance. We built a house in Vinales. And so I was going back in the fall and I got to the airport from Cancun and put me under arrest. And they said, no, you're inadmissible. Kept me under guard overnight, walked me to the airport, back to the plane in the morning and shipped me back to Mexico. And I've been inadmissible to Cuba for the last, well, next month's going to be 10 years. Oh, man. So that was a much more personal <laughs> sort of effect on me, impact. They never has said why. There's a lot of reasons it could have been, you know, like building a house in Vinyas. Foreigners aren't supposed to. It's in my now wife's name. But uh, the main reason, of course, was that I think it was that they they considered me the person principally responsible for creating the climbing community. That I not only just created the website, the guidebook, and um, we had a, a well-established donation program to sustain the Cuban climbers. I brought Cuban climbers out of Cuba to teach them how to guide and how to go back then and work. And it had become a pretty self-sufficient climbing community. And just as an aside to me, what was really important to me, and I, I think I really learned this from Craig Lubin. Craig was really influential to me and to the Cubans, even though he only he went like that first year three or four times. The next year he returned only once. And then he couldn't go back again because Craig had so many other interests like other climbers. You know, he started helping people in China and other places. But he, he taught me how important it was to, to really create a, a local group of climbers. And it to me, then it became important that not only were there Cuban climbers, but that Cubans became the principal developers of their own country. Because in the first two or three years, you know, 90% of the routes were being put up by foreigners. You know, there was mostly the, the, our small group of Americans, but David Brasco, a well-known Spanish climber, came and put over, put up a bunch of routes. It's a really great team of British climbers from Sheffield came and put up 25, some, some of them still the best routes there. Still the hard, one of them is still the hardest climb in Cuba, 14A. But after that, little by little, we, by doing everything from providing Cuban climbers with power drills, bolts, equipment, after about 2003, the Cubans took the lead in developing their own climbing. Mm -hmm. And now the overwhelming majority of all the routes there have been put up by Cubans. So that was really important to me. And so we, we did help, you know, create a self-sufficient, well, I don't want to say self-sufficient because it's don't supported by others, but I mean, it's a freestanding independent climbing community. Mm -hmm. And so then I got banned. I, I realized that it was time to try to move on and create something for Latin America, mm -hmm. you know, something because there isn't anything in Latin America like the access committee or right. the access fund. Right. And in general, the climbing federations are pretty weak. They don't do much other than sponsor people for the international competitions. Sure. Uh, so, 2009, that's what I did. It's just help launch a new organization. Mm -hmm. But my personal motiv motivation was Cuba. What I'd learned there, what I'd seen the problems that both the Cubans, because, I mean, the problems that I've gone through, Chris, are nothing compared to the Cubans. The, a lot of them have been arrested. <laughs> right. And they don't charge them with climbing. They charge them with something else. But essentially, it's being climbed for climbing. 
Uh-huh. And sometimes it used to be for hanging out with foreigners. They get, there's this crime in Cuba called dangerousness. That's in fact what it is. Pelogrosia. <laughs> dangerousness. Yeah. You're in danger of violating so, uh, they call it socialist norms. Sure. It's a status crime. You don't, yeah. they don't have to prove you did something. It's just you're hanging out with this person and that person. Uh, this you don't have a job. Place, right. Yeah. You don't have a job because most of the climbers didn't have jobs. Uh, they were climbing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, so they, they've suffered a lot worse. So that, that was the, my, my personal motivation to see if we couldn't start an organization to deal with access problems throughout Latin America. Mm -hmm. And is there, I mean, it's got to be feel a little bit impenetrable with an organization in Cuba, or has there been any sort of progress? No, because it, yeah. I mean, Talk I mean, there you. are some places where right. the the usual tactics that we used in the United States have, you know, are helpless, you know, right? <clears throat> like Cuba, because you got a totalitarian government. I mean, you know, <laughs> climbing comes down the pretty far down the list of things you want to deal with other right, than right. free speech, right, the yes. right to, to do the job you want, move where you want. And the same thing is true like another country that we've had a really hard time trying to help is Mexico. I mean, you know, what do you do when people are, you know, massacres are happening where you can't go into some places around Potrero Chico because, you know, the, the drug lords control the area. Sure. There's no one you can go talk to, no land manager you can go negotiate with. Uh, that's not true in the majority of Latin America, right. but there are places that uh, we haven't been able to help at all. And ironically, Cuba is one of them, even though, you know, we, uh, I work with them all the time in terms of trying to help them, give them advice, keep them going. Uh, the leader of the Cuban, Cuban climbing community, Yarobis Garcia. I mean, we brought him out of the country three times, uh, to, to conferences and meetings and stuff. And I don't think that that translates directly into, uh, action that they can do, but it does keep the morale. I mean, you have to, you have to sustain people in the activity they do. Sure. Well, but the I mean, fact that right. they are being supported, it goes back to that. Uh, when I said, you know, that it was Rafi Bedain who taught me, you know, the, he got me involved. The main lesson I learned from Rafi, from Rafi is that just showing up. When we started the access fund, one of the things I do whenever I get a, well, it was actually when we we're doing the access committee, I, someone would come for me to do help on some problem they were having. I would try to go there. And I found that if I just showed up, mm -hmm. usually that helped people so much to realize that you know, here was this organization that cared about what their problem was. Most of the time they were going to deal with the issue themselves. Right. You know, we might lend them a name. We didn't have any money. <laughs> we didn't have any real horsepower to do much for them. That changed in time when, when there was the access fund. But I learned there was a huge impact to showing up. Right. That's what I'd learned from Rafi. So and when you, when you started the Access Pan Am, you, I mean, you, you're like, okay, I have these experiences in Cuba. I, I have this experience with the Access Fund. I'm going to start this organization. And, and I sort of like envision this moment where you're like, okay, you sign the papers. We have this organization. And you were just like, oh my God, what now? Like, it seems like, there's so many places that you have so far to go to reach whoever it is you're even to even find out whoever it is you're even supposed to talk to and what the issues are. Or are you 
are you hearing from the people? I mean, how are you interact? I mean, how are you finding out that this place got closed or they're having a problem with this guy here? I mean, it's, it's, it's like South America. It's Central America. It's, it's huge. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, in some places, right. And the problems are so different. Oh, no, right. it is. I mean, you're, you're right. But once you're in the game, people know you're there. Okay. I mean, my, my part is not that big. I mean, I'm, I'm up here in the United States mm -hmm. and I go down there. Yes. But I mainly up here raise money. And once again, it's the industry that's responsible for starting us. So our main source of money is the climbing industry. Okay. And we're lucky we have an executive record, Kika Bradford. She's in Rio. Speak Spanish, English, and Portuguese which is what you need to cover all of Latin America. And Kika does 80% of the work. Okay. And, you know, I'm the money guy. <laughs> right. And then I, you know, I do what I can. But, you know, so we have one person on the ground and we're now we're trying to hire part-time employees in other countries. But that's what, you, you know, you start little by little. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> when we started the access fund, who, I mean, I, where they are at today was something unimaginable. <laughs> right. To those of us in 1990, 91, two, two and three. I mean, it's, you know, I look at them, what they've accomplished, you know, and how big they are and everything they do and how pro both professional, but at the same time, the passion they get, they still bring that same passion to what they do that we think we had. Right. Well, I mean, I was trying to think because I started climbing in that same moment, really in that same era. And I was just trying to think, well, when did I, when was I aware of the, access fund and, and I think we're all just assume it's always been there. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I can't remember what a time when it wasn't, even though I, I climbed before it was in existence. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's ubiquitous within climbing in America and not that everybody's joining shame on you that aren't, but you know, it's everybody knows what the access fund is. If you're a climber for five minutes, you know, yeah. out, it, outside, you know, especially outdoors. So, yeah, it's a quite an achievement. I mean, certainly. And one of my favorite lines that I've said many a time, and I hope I get to say it about <clears throat> Access Pan Am someday, is that uh, the best part of it has been to watch what what we started almost 25 years ago get taken over by successive generations of new people coming in. And then it becomes their passion. And they've taken the organization in many different directions. It's so great to see that, that they do that. You know, it, it hasn't stayed the same doing the same things it did when we started. New people come along and they've taken it, you know, farther in their own way, in their own direction. And they've cared about it as much as those of us that started. And I, I that to me has just been great. Well, awesome. Uh, thanks a lot, Armando. I think we should end it there. And, uh, uh, you giving praise to those who came after you is a is a great way to leave the podcast. Uh, I totally appreciate you coming and sitting down, and um, it's been fascinating, man, to talk to you. That's fun. That's why I always tell people: if you're doing access work or anything like that, and you're not having fun, then you're probably not doing a good job at it. All right, thanks, Armando. All right, folks, thanks for listening, perhaps for the second time or more than that time or the first time. 
Don't we all wish we could be that cool? Erudite. Suave. Fun. Proper new episode up in a couple days. In the meantime, head over to accessfund.org. Get your comments in, make your voice heard, and of course, check your knots. Oh, and if you're not an Access Fund member yet, like what are you even doing? Come on. I know you're a rugged individualist. You don't join groups. You don't go with the gang. Whatever. This time, do it. It's important. Get the free t-shirt. I got stacks of those things. They last forever. They're so soft. They get softer and softer and softer. You know those t-shirts that are so soft you can barely touch them without them falling apart? I got a couple of those with Access Fund on it. So soft. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right, because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light.